Good morning. We're resuming our survey of the Old Testament. And after a week off from weather, we're going to pick back up with the book of Joshua and also the book of Judges. And I think, Bryce, could you pull up the first? So you can see we're leaving the Pentateuch, which Michael told us were the first five books of the Bible. And now we're coming to the second major division of the Old Testament books known as the historical books. And and just for reference, it's not to say that the first five books are not history. We firmly established they were history. But these are called the books of history because they depict the history of the nation of Israel. So that's what we're going to start with today. Let's let's go ahead and, and go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time here. Father God... I told Michael Dietzel, I'm not adequate to preach your word, Lord, but please use me, speak through me. Uh, Let those of us that are here assembled hear your word. Let us understand who you are. Help us to remember the works that you've done. Help us to understand your promise of of blessing through faith and obedience. Um, Let us respond accordingly. And it's in your son Jesus Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. All right, so central here in, in Joshua and in Judges is the issue of land, okay? Joshua's all about taking it. Judges is all about keeping it. And there's a lot more to it than just that. You remember, uh, Michael taught us the Mosaic Covenant a few weeks ago. He said that uh, if the people were faithful, if they were obedient, they would realize the blessings. But if they were disobedient, um, God will punish them. So we'll start with a little background here on the book of Joshua, and then we'll go into some themes. We're not 100% certain, but Jewish tradition holds that Joshua was the author. A lot of scholars agree with that. So that's what we're going to say. Joshua was most likely the author. This book was written about 1,390 years prior to the Messiah coming, and it covers about a 30-year period in Israel's history. If we could have the next slide, Bryce. So... These are the central themes of the book of Joshua. It's all about experiencing prosperity through faith and obedience. And also, like we said, central here is the issue of land. If you remember back to Genesis 15, where we taught on that in our third week in January, God made a unilateral, unconditional promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, promising him this land, very specific land, which was inhabited by very specific people, and he reiterated this promise to Isaac, and he reiterated it to Jacob. There were no ifs, ands, or buts about it. This was God's land, and he was giving it to them. And so here we are in the book of Joshua, and we're about to, be, to see the beginning of the fulfillment of this promise. <clears throat> Joshua was a warrior. He was the first one to lead the Israelites into battle. And you'll see as you go through the book of Joshua, there are a lot of battles. And I don't know if if some of you newer Christians can identify with me, even in my 40s, when I finally decided, mea culpa here, I finally decided as a Christian in my 40s to read clear through the Bible. And when I hit Joshua, I had a real hard time because here was God commanding his people to go and wipe out people, every man, woman, and child. And I had a really hard time with that. You see, I was brought up in a church there was largely a New Testament church. And I said, how can this be the God of the New Testament of peace and love and kindness? I was brought up in a very pacifistic church. But I had to seek the wisdom and counsel of older, more mature Christian men who understood scripture 
And they said, they reminded me, and I have to remind myself, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and training and doctrine. And that includes the book of Joshua. Another thing that I have to remember as I look at the book of Joshua and all these battles and all the extermination of these peoples, is I have to ask myself the question, who, who are the recipients of war? Who, who are the recipients of peace and blessing? And all of this in context of who God is and his providence. You see, the promises of, of peace and blessing to God's people, like we see in Romans 15, these are given to God's people alone. There's nowhere in Scripture, I finally realized, where God promises peace and blessing to the wicked. The Scripture says, there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. That's Isaiah 48, chapter, uh, verse 22. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. And you're going to see that here in the book of Joshua. The promises of peace are for God's people alone. And these are wicked, wicked people. So here we are. The children of Israel are finally about to enter the promised land and conquer it and inhabit it. And all of this is led by one man, Joshua, the man the, the book is named after. So I had to ask myself a question as I'm reading through this. Why Joshua and not Moses? Does anybody know why Moses wasn't going to lead the people into the promised land? Anybody remember? He disobeyed God. Right, one act of disobedience. And this is not to say that he was not a faithful, obedient man. He was. But there was one act in Numbers chapter 20 where God had specifically told Moses, he said, look, I know the people are thirsty and all the livestock is about to die of thirst, but I want you in the, in the assembly, in front of the assembly, to go up to this massive rock in front of a hill, speak to the rock, and water will pour forth. When Moses had the people assembled, he didn't think that was enough. He didn't think it would work like God said, and so he didn't obey. And instead, he struck the rock with his staff, not once but twice, and then water poured out. And God said to him, because you failed to honor me as holy in front of the people, because of your disobedience, you will not lead this assembly into the Holy Land. So it's going to be Joshua. So, Bryce, if you could move us to the next slide. You'll see here these pagan nations. They are also about to understand what it means to, to uh, feel God's punishment. They are wicked, disobedient people. And you remember that these nations had descended from Canaan, who was the grandson of Noah. And Canaan was cursed by Noah because of his father's wicked deeds in Genesis chapter 9. And in Exodus 23, we read the names of these evil descendants of Canaan who were cursed. These are enemies of God. And here's what Moses tells the Israelites that God had said to him. My angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars into pieces. So these people that you see scattered here throughout the land of Canaan, these are evil people. They worshipped other gods. They were completely sexually immoral. Sexuality, or homosexuality was rampant. They were pedophiles and pedivores. It was a totally uh, corrupt society. And God was very serious about protecting his chosen people, the Israelites, from these things and from their gods. 
and he was worried about protecting their children and their children's children. So chapter 1, let's start with Joshua. Chapter 1 describes the preparations for crossing the Jordan River. And where Michael left us off two weeks ago, the Israelites had traveled all the way up from Egypt along the eastern side of the Dead Sea, as you can see, and they're camped at the northeast corner of the Dead Sea. And Moses climbs up to a place called Mount Nebo, and God shows him all the promised land and said, all this I have given you. But the Israelites had to go and take it. They had to conquer it and possess it. And now God gives Joshua a strict command. And he says this to Joshua. He says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. And three times in the first nine verses, thank you for moving the slide for me. Thank you. First times in the, nurse, in the first nine verses, uh, Joshua is told by God, be strong and very courageous. In other words, have faith. And three times he's told, obey the words of the law. And what does that mean? What have we said when, when God repeats something in Scripture? What does that mean? It's an emphasis. Really pay attention to this. So he says that three times. Next slide, please. In chapter 2, Joshua sends two spies into the land. The first target they're going to go after is Jericho. And you can see where they had been camped. Jericho was right across the Jordan River. But he sends a couple of spies into the city of Jericho, and they, they meet a woman named Rahab. She's a prostitute or a harlot. But she takes them in, and she gives them some good military info, some intel. She says, look, everybody here, all these Canaanites, are scared to death. We've heard of the exploits of the Israelites. We know what your God did in bringing you out of the land of Egypt. And we heard what he's done in the wilderness. And she said, these people are scared to death of you. They're trembling. And she said, in fact, I am convinced personally that the God of Israel is the one true God. And she was willing to convert to become an Israelite. And because of her faith and the fact that that she had protected the spies... I mean, these men would have killed them. They said, look, when we come back and destroy this city, we'll protect you and your family. But take a red scarlet cord and hang it out your window. So when we come, we'll recognize that that's your house and we'll protect you. So, chapter 3, chapter 4, the first verse of chapter 5, these detail the crossing of the Jordan River. This was a big, big deal. Uh, the, The Jordan River... I think, J.D., you've been there. Some other people may have seen it. It's not that big of a river. I, I think it's kind of like the Wakarusa now. Smaller. It's a trickle compared to what it used to be. It used to be more like probably the Kansas or the Missouri River. Um, rather than crossing right where they had been camped, if you look, Jericho was across the river in eyesight. They traveled north along the eastern side of the Jordan River, and they crossed near Gilgal. <clears throat> and remember... Uh, This is a couple million people, and they crossed over. God stopped up this massive river, and they crossed on dry ground, just like when Glenn took us through Exodus, and God parted the Red Sea. This was a big deal. They crossed on dry ground. And so that day, Scripture says, Joshua was exalted in the eyes of the people, and they feared him just as they had feared Moses. And because of this crossing, this miraculous crossing, Joshua told them, told them, go into the riverbed, grab 12 massive stones, and they set up an altar 
to remember so that future generations remember what God had done as he led them into the promised land. Now, verse 1 of chapter 5. When the Amorites and the kings of the Canaanites heard about their crossing of the Jordan River, they knew what was coming, and they were overcome with fear. And Scripture says there was no spirit left in them. Chapter 6, we have the destruction of Jericho. And these people had barricaded themselves inside the city. They were trembling with fear. And God tells Joshua something very interesting. He says, I want you to take all the nation, and I want you to, on the, each of the next six days, I want you to have the people march once around the entire city. And then on the seventh day, I want the entire nation to march around it seven times. And at the end of the seventh circuit, I want seven priests to blow the shofars. These are long ram's horns. If you've ever heard a shofar, boy, these things resonate. It's, it's amazing. Seven of them at a time. So I want you to blow those things. And then all the people will lift up a shout, and the walls will come down, and you'll be able to go in and take that city. And everything happened just like God said it would. And they went in, they ransacked the city, and they put every man, woman, and child, and every beast to the sword, and they destroyed them, and they burnt everything to the ground. Except for Rahab and her family, who were hidden. If you could give me the next slide, Bryce. And you'll notice here, there, there might be a little similarity. The Israelites had kept the Passover in the wilderness, and I don't know, but I wonder if this was a little bit of foreshadowing that they knew the red on her door meant that she was to be saved. By the way, Rahab, Scripture talks about her. She was saved by her faith. She um, denied her countrymen. Uh, she was even in the lineage of Jesus in the New Testament, it says. This, this harlot, amazing. But God had also given specific instructions to the soldiers, the Israelite soldiers. Soldiers, He said, when you take the city and you go in there, you take out all their gold, all their silver, all their bronze, all their iron, but it's going to go into the service of the house of the Lord. Nobody's going to keep any of this booty for themselves, okay? There was very specific instructions that they were told of this. And as the city is burning and everything's been toppled, Joshua pronounces a curse on the city, and he says, let no one ever rebuild the walls of this city and make it a fortress ever again, because if they do, when they lay the foundation, their firstborn will die, and when the, the gates are raised, their youngest will die. And this prophecy came true. Later on, another man tried to raise the city of Jericho. He did. Check this out. 1 Kings 16.34 says this. In his days, Hael, the Bethelite, built Jericho... He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and he set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. <clears throat> we could have the next slide, Bryce. In chapter 7, I don't know if you can see, well, we don't have AI there. If you could find another slide maybe previously where AI is listed. South and west of Jericho was a city called Ai maybe a little northwest in this depiction. Um, so this was next on the target list, and the Israelites were full of confidence, and they decided to go and attack Ai, knowing that they were going to take another parcel of land. But something went wrong. They were soundly beaten. They were whooped. 36 of their soldiers were killed, and they retreated back to their camp, and they went into mourning for these 36 men, and they said, what has happened? And Joshua goes on his face before the Lord, and he asks his counsel, and God says, there has been disobedience among the people. I specifically forbade you to take loot and keep it as personal possessions. And it turns out there was one man named Achan who had stolen some of the bounty of Jericho, and he hid it in his tent. 
This was very serious sin. Remember what Stephen told us in the book of Numbers. God is just, and sin must be punished. So the Israelites, Joshua had all the Israelites assemble. Achan and his entire family were brought before the council, and he said, bring your possessions, and they put all their possessions in front of them. And they went to the tent, and they found the loot that he had stolen. They brought it out and put it on the pile, and they stoned them to death, and they burned their bodies. This might sound really harsh, but they had to purge sin from their midst. God is just. God is holy. He must punish sin. And so with, with renewed confidence in God says, now you have my blessing, they reattacked Ai, and they went in and they, they totally took it. They defeated them completely. That's in chapter 8. And they take another parcel of the promised land. Chapter 9 We have a very interesting development here. You see Gibeon down there to the south and west of Ai. The Gibeonites were trembling. They knew that they were next. Now, there were a few other villages that are not pictured here uh, around Gibeon. And four or five of these cities with Gibeon said, what are we going to do? We don't want to face the Israelites. So they decided to deceive the Israelites. And they sent a delegation of men acting like they'd come from a long, long ways away, pretending not to be Canaanites, right? They said to Joshua, and by the way, they were dressed in tattered clothes and old ratty sandals, and they had wineskins that were all worn out and and repaired, and their sandals were falling apart, and they, they said, we have heard of the great deeds that the God, your God of Israel, has done for you, and we're afraid of the Canaanites. Could you protect us? We'll be your servants And so without consulting the Lord, Joshua and the Israelites made a covenant with the Gibeonites, who were actually Canaanites, and they vowed to protect them from the Canaanites, and they made a covenant. They cut a covenant, and they had to protect them. So three days later, their trickery was found out, but it was too late. You see, when we talked about cutting a covenant, remember back in in Genesis, they cut it in blood, and it was serious. They had to uphold their covenant and protect these people, okay? So they made them servants. But this was not what God had commanded them to do. In fact, um, listen to this from Deuteronomy. This is the instruction that God had given them to destroy all these people. This is what God had said. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you, and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no favor to them. Later on in Israel's history, um, King Saul tries to exterminate these Gibeonites. They were a thorn in his side. But because of the covenant, he was punished for that. And we come to chapter 10, and we read the famous account of Joshua's long day. What had happened was the rest of the land of Canaan heard about their treachery, their treason. These Gibeonites were supposed to fight with them against the Israelites. And they said, you know what? We need to go destroy the Gibeonites. Let's take it to them. If they're afraid to be killed by the Israelites, we'll kill them. So the Canaanites banded together, and they went against Gibeon and the other cities in this treaty, And the Gibeonites found out about this. They went to Joshua and they said, please protect us. You remember the covenant. So Joshua, I mean, the Israelites had to take these cities out anyway. They said, okay, this is a good excuse. Let's go take these five cities. And they did. 
God blessed them, and one by one they took out these cities. But at the end of the day, these people were still running for their fortified cities, and before they could get in there, Joshua did an amazing thing. He asked the Lord to stop the sun and the moon in the heavens to extend the day for daylight so that they could exterminate every one of them, and they did. It was an amazing day. Now, I have to stop here because I went to KU. I received a secular science education. I took geography, geology, astronomy. Come on, really? This was a sticking stone for me. I've come to realize this is the God who created the cosmos and everything in it. He spoke them into existence, including these two heavenly bodies. So it might be hard for me, a natural man, to explain these things to myself. How could God do It might be hard for me to understand, but not so much for God. This is the God that created the laws of nature. He commands them. They stand at attention when he wants to do something like turn water to wine or walk on water or feed 5,000 people from a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish or when he wants to raise the dead. And when he said, stand still, these two bodies that he created did that. Isn't that incredible? We serve an awesome God, don't we? So he does this. They destroy them. And it was a complete victory. Okay, now back to what happened after the rout. Let's go to chapter 10. Starting with verse 28 through 43. This gives us a summary of everything that God did for the people and all their conquests to take the southern half of the land below the Dead Sea. Let's look at verse 40. Chapter 10 of Joshua, verse 40. Thus Joshua struck all the land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. And then verse 42. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land one at a time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. In chapter 11, tells us about the northern campaign of the land, and they take all that. Chapter 12 lists all the kings the Israelites conquered. There's a good number of them. And then chapters 13 through 21 talks about the division of this land that they'd conquered and the inhabitation by the tribes of Israel. And we move to chapters 23 and 24, and Joshua is coming to an end here. And this is where the book of Joshua comes to a close. He's old and advanced in years. He's over 100 years old now. And he brings all the Israelite nations together, and he's going to challenge them. And he's going to demand that they choose who they're going to serve. He reminds them that they need to be courageous, have faith, and to obey the law written by Moses. And he reminds them of God's faithfulness in fulfilling all of the promises he'd made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. But above all, he told them this. He said, keep yourselves free from idolatry. And don't intermarry with the Canaanites. Because if you do, they'll be a continual source of trouble to you. And again, Joshua stressed to the people that not one word of God's word had failed. Isn't that a good lesson for us? Has any of his word ever failed? So he stressed that to them. Nothing that God has said has failed to come to pass. But he reminded them, he says, if you transgress the covenant that he had promised to Moses, his anger will burn against you and you'll be spit out of the land. And he says this, if you cannot or will not choose to serve the God who led us to defeat these Canaanites and their puny little gods, you've only got two choices. Serve the gods of Egypt that some of our ancestors served or serve these puny gods 
who we just destroyed. It's up to you. And he says in verse 15, but as for me and my household, we choose to serve the Lord. And the people responded back, if you look at verse 16 of chapter 24. Now mark this. Listen to what these people said. When we get to the book of Judges, remember what they said. The people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out from us, from before us, all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord for he is our God. And remember what they said there. Chapter ends by recording the death of Joshua. He's about 110. And at this point, uh, the scriptures tell us that there are still major portions that need to be conquered and inhabited. See, God had given it to them, but again, they still had to be obedient and go out and take it. So in chapter 13, verse 1, verse um, 2 of chapter 18, chapter 23, verses 4 through 6, tell us there's still a lot of land left, right? They haven't taken it all. This should really be interesting to us, by the way, from a political sense, because the issues that start right here in Joshua are still being discussed among the nations and their leaders, and the issue of Israel's right to the land is still very much in play in world politics. All these things that started right here, they're still in play. I find that very interesting. Uh, Bryce, if we could come to uh, uh, the, the, the next slide. We might have to move forward. Yeah, thank you. As we come to the end of Joshua, this second to the, third to the last verse gives us a good summary of what happened here. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua. And Israel had known all the deeds of the Lord for which he had done for them. So that is how the book of Joshua ended. Okay? They received the blessings because of faith and obedience. They had peace and rest and land that he would promised them. Let's move on to the book of Joshua now. If you could have the next slide. This book was written to detail the great failures that followed for the Israelites. This was a 300-year period in the nation in which they formed a form of government known as the theocracy. And I'll call on my, my political science son, Tim. What is a theocracy? Can you tell us? It's a society where the person who rules was appointed by them. Yes, yes, very good. I have to learn these things from Tim, my sophomore in high school. A theocracy is a government led by a divinely appointed leader. And the book of Judges is named after a really interesting collection of people that God raised up to lead Israel after Joshua's death for these next 300 years for a period up until when um, King Samuel was raised up as king and, and then the monarchy begins. We assume the author to be Samuel and he's writing about a thousand years before the Messiah came. So the events take place, as you can see, from roughly 1360 B.C. to 1050 B.C. And the main theme of Judges here is unbelief, and disobedience bring punishment and forfeiture of blessings. And if we go to Judges 2, for those of you that have your Bibles, go to Judges 2, verses 6 through 10. Actually, you might, you might write a little note before chapter 1, verse 1, and say, go to Judges 2, verse 6 through 10 for the intro. Because these verses give us the perfect intro. Or you might make a bracket in your margin next to verses two through, or 6 through 10 in chapter 2 that says, read this before starting chapter 1. Here's what verses 6 and 7 say. This is a summary of what had happened before this. 
After Joshua had dismissed the people, the people of Israel went, each to his inheritance, to take possession of the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. It's just like Joshua 1.8. I'm sorry, 24.31. Same reiteration of that. Next slide. We go to verse 10. It says that after Joshua's generation passed away, note this. This is very important here. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. We move to chapter 1. This begins detailing the continuing quest of Canaan. You remember, like we said, there still remained a lot of land to conquer, and uh, they would go on with the blessings of the Lord to conquer the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and uh, 12 major cities, chapter 1 tells us, including some that we recognize, Bethel, Jerusalem, Gaza, things that we still recognize, but they they failed to complete the conquest. You see, six of the tribes of Israel failed to obey God's command to completely wipe them out. Instead, they let some of the Canaanites survive and become servants. We turn to chapter 2 now again. That was chapter 1. We immediately see God's response to Israel's disobedience. Let's let's read verses 1 through 4 now of chapter 2. This this book, by the way, um, is summarized in chapter 2. If if you just read chapter 2, you'll get an idea of exactly what went on. But let's start with the second part of verse 1. God's rebuking the people for their disobedience and letting these Canaanites live. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land, which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they would continue to weep because the Canaanites did rise up against them, these people that they had not exterminated, and they put them into servitude. We could go to the next slide. All right, if you read the last half of chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, and you read all the way through the first six verses of chapter 3, we get a summary of what happens here. We learn that God raises up a judge. The people are weeping. They're oppressed by these Canaanites. He raises up a judge. The judge leads them into successful battle. They're obedient, and they praise God, and they regain the land, and they're given rest. They receive the blessings. They're delivered from their misery. And they experience a really good long period, usually 40 years, one time it was 80 years, of peace and rest. And then, after a generation or two passes, they descend into rebellion again. They forget God. They go after other gods. They disobey. And again, the Canaanites raise up, take back their land, oppress the Israelites. They go into servitude and suffering. They follow that by crying out to God. He raises a... If I sound like a broken record here, it's because it is. Over the next 14 chapters, this cycle happens nine more times, and it's an ever-downward spiral. It gets worse and worse and worse. And so we come to the final four chapters, and these final four chapters give us an idea of just what a low level of spiritual depth the Israelites reached after 
300 years. I wonder if there's any other nations that we can think of that are almost 300 years old that have kind of turned away from God. I can't think of any. But chapter 18 records the idolatry of the tribe of Dan. These people hire a Levite priest. Now, the Levites were commanded by God to be the priests to the people. So they figure, hey, we're good spiritually. But this guy has little idols in his sanctuary, and they don't mind it. Kind of like, I don't know if they're like little Roman Catholic Marys or other little saints that they were worshiping and praying to, but there were other gods, and they were okay with that. As long as they had a Levitical priest, they thought they were good, right? Uh, Chapter 19 records the saga of another Levite who has a concubine, which is basically a mistress he's not married to. This guy, in chapter 19, he's traveling through the land of Benjamin up in the northern section. This is a tribe of Israel, remember, and they were just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Homosexuality was rampant. They worshiped other gods, and This guy, he comes into this city, and just like in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, he's taken in by a man who lives there, one of the Benjamites. He says, stay in my house. And that night, the men of the city, who were so depraved, they came and they they knocked on the guy's door and said, hey, let us have this new guy. We want to have our way with him. And he says, no, 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 no. He says, I'll tell you what, he's got a concubine. And he goes and grabs her, and he gives her to these men, and they gang rape her all night long. And they kill her, and they leave her body on the doorstep. And the next morning, the Levite guy finds his concubine's body, and he takes her home, and he is incensed. And he cuts her body into pieces, and he sends them with couriers to all the other tribes of Israel. And he says, look what the tribe of Benjamin, our brothers, have done to my property, my concubine. And they're infuriated. And the tribes go against Benjamin, one of their own tribes, And they almost completely wipe them out. They almost decimate them with the exception of several hundred young men who had not gone to battle. And they made a pact with themselves. They said, look, nation of Israel, we will not give our daughters in marriage to these young men. Nobody is to give their daughter to them. And then they had a crisis. They wept. And they went to God. Listen to this. This is amazing how they blamed God. How could you have let this happen? How could you have let us almost wipe out one of our own 12 tribes? And they said, we have to figure out a way for them to rebuild and prosper as a nation of Israel. And so they said, well, hey, one of our cities, one of our own cities failed to go to battle with us against the tribe of Benjamin. Let's go take them. And so they did. They took one of their own cities, and they they took 400 of their virgins for the tribe of Benjamin. But that wasn't enough, so they went to Shiloh, where we think the Philistines owned that city. And they kidnapped a few hundred more virgins and gave it to them. None of this was God's plan. This was not authorized by God, but they, this is where they were at. This is where they were at. If we could go to the next slide. This is how the book of Judges ends. The last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I don't know about you, but this sounds familiar. Uh, We live in a day of moral relativism. Hey, you do what you do. Whatever God you want to worship, like Oprah will tell you, Oprah says, I'm a Christian, but hey, whatever God you want to worship, I'm sure that all roads lead to heaven. You know that universalist thinking? This is where they were at. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Whatever works for you, I'll just focus on being me. So this is where the nation of Israel was 3,000 years ago. So moral relativism is no new thing. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And importantly, the blessings were withdrawn. So what do we learn from these two books today? 
In the book of Joshua, the Israelites were profoundly successful in their campaign to take the land and to inhabit the land, and they experienced the blessings promised to them. They had prosperity, they had rest, they had peace because they'd been faithful, they worshiped the one true God, and they'd been obedient, they'd kept his word. So just as God promised, they were blessed. In contrast, as we just heard, in the book of Judges, despite their promise, remember their promise, what they'd said to Joshua, oh, we'll serve the Lord. They continually turned their hearts away from the Lord. They forgot his word, and they went after other gods. And this vicious cycle we talked about repeated itself over and over and over again. Blessings through faith and obedience... Punishment for lack of obedience. So we're left today here with this question. Why why did this happen? How is this even possible? How is it possible for one generation to turn away from God? Turn away, fall away from faith and obedience. How is that even possible? Was it because, like the scripture mentioned, you know, they hadn't actually physically seen the works that God did? Was it because their parents hadn't taught them properly? Or was it maybe because they compromised on God's word and said, well, we really don't need to take that that seriously. That happened a long time ago. Do you think maybe there's a relevant message here today for us? All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching doctrine. I hope we can can learn from these lessons that happened 3,000 years ago. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, Thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us of your works. Lord, I pray for our church. I pray for the churches in Lawrence, all believers, collectively and individually, Lord. If we're to have this transformation of our hearts and to be obedient to you, Lord, we need you to draw us closer to you, that we might obey, Lord, that we would would remember your acts, that that we would understand that you've given us this record in your word and that we would honor your word because it is your word and that we would guard this deposit and teach it to other faithful Christians who can teach it to others and to our children and our children's children so that we might be obedient and faithful, Lord, and that we would receive the blessings that you've promised and we pray these things to you, Lord, today in Jesus, the Lord, your Son, Amen.